my recorder. I'm recording me. You're record. You're being recorded. Hooray! Welcome to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, my favorite Beatles album. Yay! Hurrah! Hurrah! Anyway, so um, it's gonna be a full episode. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to A Year with the Beatles, a limited series of 12 podcasts exploring virtually every studio album by the Beatles, month by month. My name is Graham Burke. On our eighth episode, we're talking about how Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was a game changer for both the record album and for popular music in general. Plus, we're standing by the banks of the Mississippi to talk about the greatest Beatles parody ever made, so stick around. As with every month, here to coach us through this recitation on the Beatles discography is Rob Jones, the music critic and writer for the music blog, The Delete Bin. Is all sanguine with you today, Rob? It is sanguine as sanguine can be, Graham. Excellent. And back with us today is the lovely and talented Shannon Dohar, who we know and love from several episodes of this and many other fine podcasts. Hi there, Shannon. Hello, Graham and Rob. How are you guys this evening? Oh, oh, pretty good. Okay, so recap time. There's this band called The Beatles. They released 12 albums. We're reviewing them every month. Boom. And with explanatory justice dispensed thusly, let's talk about this month's selection, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which was released on the 1st of June, 1967. So here's everything you need to know about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in three minutes, more or less. It was 20 years ago today. Everyone you 
So, Rob, my dear friend. Oh, oh, I can feel a, a hard question coming, Graham. <laughs> wow, your psychic intuitions are just so on the money. That's a gift. Thank you. Very good. A very good gift. Hmm. The Beatles' particular innovation with Sgt. Pepper is how they approach the record album itself. And it's not the first concept album, but in many ways they popularized it. What was the particular stroke or strokes of geniuses involved in doing this, do you think? The stroke of genius was not that they came up with a really cool and cohesive concept that runs through the, through the length of the, of the record. What I think was the real genius move was the idea of a framing device, of having, you know, having this sort of band uh, kind of framing around the, uh, the Beatles and their work uh, as a way of kind of kind of shielding themselves from the whole showbiz treadmill, which is what they were trying to get off of for, you know, over a year by that time. So they were able to do that because they, uh, they were able to, to frame the, the, the album as the show. Really, that was, that was the main innovation to start off with. I mean, there's, there's plenty of other stuff to talk about, which we, of course, will do. But uh, when, if you're talking about an in innovation uh, and what this album represented on a sort of basic level, I'd say that's probably it. I think they've sort of built on what they did with uh, Revolver in many ways in terms of the actual packaging of the album. I think the gatefold cover with them with all, with all the wax figures and, and, and cardboard stand-ups, uh, the, um, the lyrics being actually displayed part of the sleeve it really has and even the look sergeant pepper's band on the cover i think you sort of come into the album with a with a real expectation of what you're going to get just from the visuals of it alone well it's because it was the show right that, that was the what the what the album was supposed to represent at this point in time yeah. they were it feels like you know, a program yeah it's it's like it's yeah. a guy yeah exactly it's a program but it's also you know this sort of sumptuous visual uh, visual feast you know that they wanted to kind of present to their listeners. And uh, as we've kind of mentioned along the line, uh, the Beatles were interested in, you know, value for money for the fans. So, you know, if they were not going to get to see the Beatles play, then, you know, they had to have the the album kind of be the, the showy piece um, that uh, that would kind of serve that purpose. I think also the, the, the nice thing about having that kind of visual thing, because if you look at 
you compare, say, the cover of Beatles for Sale, which, Rob, I think you actually said was a photo that they took because, because they ran out of time and they needed and they needed something quick. But the but if you look at that compared to this, it's 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 such a you know the you know, they've taken the lessons that they got off of Revolver and having that great Klaus Vorman cover and they just sort of kick that to to another next level it was really kind of it's it's really quite stunning to me they put a lot of thought and and preparation into it as well you know clear all the names and making sure all the people in the pictures you know they had their permission and all this kind of stuff it was kind of a it was kind of a big deal just the cover alone and of course we always had the enduring mystery of why does paul have an ontario provincial police badge on there you go uh, <laughs> and so many more mysteries well, <laughs> yes i know but you know for rob and i growing up in the province of ontario we were like on how the hell did he get a police yeah. badge <laughs> and now we know <laughs> And now we know. know. Uh, you can you can look it up on the on the yes, internet, there you go. listener. We're not going to get into, into it today. today. Now, Shannon will be familiar with this style of question as I use it when reviewing seasons of Doctor Who on my <laughs> other podcast, Reality Bomb, and she already knows what I'm going to do. I because... do, I do know what you're going to do. <laughs> Who and I don't. This is very exciting. Oh, Indeed. this is a fun change of pace. <laughs> it is. There, isn't there you it? go. But so, if you could sum up Sergeant Pepper in one word. What word would that be? I'm going to start with you, Shannon. Theatrical. Theatrical. That's very good. Rob, what would your word be? Well, I will say the word change. Uh, that okay. sounds really pretentious and everything, but I, I really think that if we're going to talk about concepts or you know thematic threads, that's definitely a change. Uh, my word is going to be optimism. Uh, so uh, why don't we start with you, Shannon? Uh, explain theatrical. I am very much a theater kid, and as you were talking, Graham, about the presentation of the album and the you know the photography and the lyrics, and I kind of said as a throwaway that it feels like a program, but it really does feel like it could almost be a cast recording. I mean, it feels like you're trying to translate a presentation that you would have on a stage, which of course that, that was the goal was to get off of the tour and to have this be a replacement of, of sorts. The effort that it takes to translate something that is meant to be on stage to feel like a complete piece as a cast recording is a really tricky thing to do. A lot of, a lot of play, people don't get it right. When you do, it's something really special. And this has the same kind of magic that a really good cast album does where you feel like you don't even really need to be there to see it, to appreciate it. That's theatrical. Rob, how about change? Well, this is, this is a real uh, big concept for me. Uh, listening to this record recently in preparation for our, our humble uh, podcast today. Uh, and that is that I really feel like whether they were conscious of it or not, I, I think that they were really in tune with, with, the changing times and, and this this album really really reflects that overtly and not so overtly as well just the way that they're uh that they're setting everything up in terms of the technical side but also thematically in the songs in a day in a life the passage of time uh being connected into a certain period of time and being really aware of that there's just lots of that type of stuff on this album and uh to be frank, I don't think I I noticed it before, you know, after having listened to it only recently. Uh, and it's one of those albums that keeps on giving in that respect. But that really left out for me uh, th this time. And my word was optimism. And I think there's, uh, for me, part of it is that, I mean, I, I've been listening to this album since I was 14 years old. And every time I listen to it, it just makes me so damn happy. 
so uh, there's that. But I think it's, I feel there's a real genuine sense of optimism to the album. I mean, the stories in it that they tell are about people who are getting control of their lives or they found happiness within their lives. Even Day in the Life is sort of giving us the sort of ref the, the dark reflection of that in a way. Uh, to my mind, it's a it's a very it's an album that's got what its concept is is that it it has a it, it has a unified tone to it. it. There's a there's a real uplift to this album. It really feels like it it, it it's genuinely trying to you know bring people to a happier place. And I, I really love that quality of that album. So yeah, that's my word, optimism. It's a good word too, Graham, because I think it's kind of a microcosm of <clears throat> of the Beatles catalog you know, all told. I mean, there's lots of dark stuff in there, of course, which we've talked about, and there's even more dark stuff to, to come. But I, I think that's one of the things I love about the Beatles in general, and that is that it has this sheen of sort of joyfulness and, and affirming kind of spirit to it. Uh, and and I think I think that maybe that's why Sgt. Pepper did so well, because it was a kind of a an embodiment of, of that. I think there are people who always love using it as, you know, the sort of shining piece of the summer of love and I, I always I always hate that kind of let's let's connect it to a broader movement and yeah in some ways but in some ways it's also true I, I think I think it it, it reflected a, a certain optimism that was a part of the zeitgeist at that time yeah I think so too and I, I'm not one of those people that that believe that the 60s was created by the Beatles and everybody followed the Beatles but uh, you know this was certainly uh, one of the sort of signposts that things were really beginning to shift in terms of the way people were perceiving themselves and perceiving the the world around them. And as you mentioned, Graham, a lot of the songs reflect that as well in terms of people being in a certain life and they're getting out of that life, or they're they're at least more aware of of, of their li their lives and songs. So um, if there's any thread to follow, then that's that's certainly a, an important one. Like a shining example of not having to be incredibly dark to be interesting and thoughtful. Like, all of the tracks, even kind of the, when you get a little bit darker, like Day in the Life and Within You and Without You, it's it's very thoughtful and it's very interesting, but it's not, it does not feel like there's a pall over the record by any stretch of the imagination. It, it really is an incredible argument against something having to be very dire to be interesting and, and complicated and um, challenging. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I think, and if you look at even within you, without you, I, I think you know, yes, it's it's George being grumpy, and do I have to really be on this album? I'd really want to be back back home building my pool, but you know, which he, which true fact he was actually doing um, during during the recording. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but but I I do think there's a there's a level of engagement that it's that it's calling the listener to do, which is really quite sweet and charming actually. Mm -hmm. So I, I I really I really love within you without you. So do I, and <clears throat> of course we we talked about uh, within you without you a little bit when we were talking about George Martin. And uh, just how uh, sumptuous that, that track is musically and how interesting and full of contrast it is. I'm shaking my head at calling this a grumpy song. I don't think it's a grumpy song. I, I don't think it's a grumpy song either. Yeah, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think it's so warm, actually. It's, it, I think that what I love about it is it has a wonderfully warm kind of feeling about it, yeah. which is mm -hmm. somewhat unusual for George, but, you know, we'll, we'll go with it. It's, it's a little grumpy. It's, it's meditative, little, it's thoughtful, yeah. it's very, yeah. like, it feels like a chant. The, the, the grumpiness comes in a little bit when he says, are you one of them, which is a, which is a very George Harrison thing to say. Well, uh, I'll give you that. When, that's you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like that's they're, true. They're, 
there there are little hints of that throughout his his entire career and and I but I think it's important to put that into context and that is that I think another important aspect of this album was they were trying to get away from showbiz and in some ways Sgt. Pepper was like a parody of showbiz right and even, yeah. even within that song within you without you it's about uh, you know uh, we were talking about the 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 space between us all and, and how that plays into the whole showbiz dynamic I, I think that can definitely apply so that's the context there. So if, if George is a little grumpy, it's okay, because he's been on the treadmill for a while. Very meditative. It is very, uh, it feels like an Om Shanti. And, you know, that is that is all about uh, a level of um, peace and thoughtfulness and connectivity. Try to realize it's all within yourself And like any emotion outside of that, even the little kind of suspicious, are you one of them? Mm-hmm. It, it's, there is kind of an awareness and, and it's very kind of. Uh, but I, I think the use of the word awareness is important there because that's definitely something that we're, we're seeing throughout the record. My next couple of questions are about the individual songs and I decided instead of what your favorites and whatnot, I've decided to ask more, slightly more prosaic questions, perhaps because I'm just for variety. But is there one song that you would put in a museum and say, this is the Beatles at their finest? I don't think you can, I don't think I could not say A Day in the Life because for, for so many reasons, one being it's, it's, it's lyrically interesting and it's full of contrasts and dark and light. And uh, but still with a sort of musical lightness as well, and actually it has musical lightness, but it also has that sort of heavy, you know, sense of foreboding as well. And I think it just does everything that the Beatles were good at um, in, in their prime period. I think that's a really good way of putting it, Rob. Because for me, what I love about that song is is that it starts out so deceptively simple and just gets more and more complex. Mm-hmm. I mean that. I mean, I I can listen to the first verse of of that song where it's just literally <laughs> the jazz trio of of McCartney, Lennon, and and Stark. Uh, that hypnotic siren like gu- gu- guitar and the, and some really nice gentle piano by Paul and. I read the news today, oh boy, about a lucky man who made the grade. And then all of a sudden, you know, the next the next verse kicks in, and all of a sudden they put in the bass, in, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they're putting, and then Ringo is just going nuts on the drums. He blew his mind out in a car. He didn't notice that the lights had changed. Ringo's drumming is very good on that, isn't it? It is. Like, it I, really I, is. It's, it's one of those things that you don't level. always notice. Yeah, it's it's uh, you know that those those fills. He was great with fills. And uh, and that's a really good example. That's that's well observed. And you're not even at the, the subway tunnel effect. You, that's next. <laughs> The song just becomes more and more complex. And then you're in the sort of, you know, waking up and, and doing the thing and, and all the things they've kind of added to that just to make give it give it the immediacy. 
Find my coat and grab my hat Made the bus in seconds flat And then all of a sudden it's back to the tunnel Last verse is just Ringo, Ringo just just drumming up the place. And it's just so perfect. It is some some songs are great to listen to, but some songs feel like a location that you visit whenever you hear it. Mm. And I, I think that that's a, a day in the life is is definitely one of those. It feels like you're walking across a landscape that you're in a world. Shannon, what one would you put in the museum for this album? You really have to pick Day in the Life in terms of like what you would what you would put in a museum. But I do want to give a shout out for Good Morning, Good Morning. I think that that uh, song is fascinating, and there's so much going on. I the time signatures in that song. I mean, talk about Ringo. Like it's out of control. Heading for home, you start to roam, then you're in town. Like the structure, the technical aspects of Good Morning, Good Morning. I mean, there's there's obviously a lot of technical prowess to Day in the Life and it's groundbreaking and revolutionary. But when you like Good Morning, Good Morning is the one that made me want to buy the sheet music because you want to see it. Like you want to see what the hell is going on. Like to and that was a feeling that I had in general about the album was that emotionally I didn't actually have a, a strong connection to most of the album. But technically, I just wanted to like dig in and look at what exactly what was going on musically and how you would put some of this stuff on paper and where the time signatures shift and where the modulations were and where it went from staccato into legato and like how everything builds on top of itself. The technical prowess of this album is phenomenal. And I think good morning, good morning is maybe the best example of how that plays out musically. I would have picked a day in the life too. Uh, but in the absence of that, I'm going, I'm going to go with Lucy in the sky with diamonds, which I actually think is, is a beautiful piece of poetry. Uh, and, and it is just, and it is one of those things that it just freaked me out when I was a kid listening to it. And now I, now I just absolutely adore it. It, it, it because, 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 because when you hear the lyrics for the first time, it just is so scary in a way it just it, 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 it sounds so unnatural it sounds like things that you should never be kind of putting into these kind of combinations of words I was repelled by it when I listened to it as, as I, I guess a seven or eight year old. But, but nowadays I just, I just, the thing I love most about it, it's that, Oh my God, how, you know, newspaper taxis appear on the shore waiting to take you away. And I'm like going, yeah, take me, go ahead. <laughs> I'm there. Yeah. And that three uh, beat right before the yeah. chorus, that bump, bump, bump. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's like a count in, right? Every time the, every time the chorus starts. I actually found it to be uh, not not scary at all, but sort of uh, phantasmagorical, maybe. The yeah. very Lewis Carroll 
And this is a time uh, in Lenin's life where he realized that all the stuff that he was doing uh, in his written work, all the, you know, in his own right and stuff like that, <clears throat> at some point someone said to him, John, why don't you do this, you know, in one of your songs? And it didn't occur to him before. And uh, so this was... This is one of the, you know, this is the period in which he began to kind of meld those two t- types of things together. I think, too, it's, it's another one of those songs that it feels like a place that you go to when you hear it. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of tunes like that on this album, which maybe is why people consider it to be like a concept album, like, a sto- like they're trying to tell a story, which they aren't. The, the, the songs don't really do that, but yeah. it feels like they do because when you're, when you're there, you're, it feels like you're in a place. There is no connective tissue between the song, except for the songs themselves. In, in the yeah, not really, yeah. The majority of them are story songs, which mm. very much plays into that. I mean, they're not, they don't connect as a as a plot from the start of the record to the end of the record, but so many of these songs are portraits, they're character mm-hmm. studies, they're they're short stories. So it, it feels it feels like a collection of short stories. It has that kind of literary huh. vibe. My next question sort of complements the previous one somewhat. Now, if you had to take one song from this album with you to a desert island, which one would that be? Like the real real answer would be Within You and Without You. We've talked about it like to death, but that would be the one that I would That would probably be the one that I would bring with me on a desert island like out of the catalog of musical history <laughs> like that would be on the list. <laughs> I'm of two minds because part of me would say I want to I want to take when I'm 64, which has been my favorite song on that album since I was 14 years old. I just I just adore that song. I adore the bounce of it. When I get older, losing my head, many years from now, will you still be sending me a Valentine? Birthday greetings, bottle of wine. I adore the 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 attempt to duplicate old music hall with it i i, I love i love the genre filching in it when i was 14 years old that's how much of a nerd i was back then so uh, and and so i appreciate it even more today but the one that's been really grabbing me now is getting better uh, even though yes there is one verse which is really really ooky uh in our you know that's a weird song <laughs> yeah that is a weird some weird things happening in that track. There, there, there's some there's some bad there's some bad happening for sure but 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 the rest of that song it just really captures the optimism of the album you know i love the chorus i just i just adore that chorus them for me it's it, it and all the cliched ways that is and all the non-cliched ways it isn't i, I just i just i just love that song that's sort of and, it's, and it's a feast isn't it it's just a, a sonic right. feast there's so many so yeah. much and stuff happening in there all that brian wilson you know that yeah. type of that type of brian wilson type yeah, of feel yeah. to it plus he got george harrison's uh sitar kind of winding its way through which i never noticed before i got the the uh uh, I got I got the the reissues, you know, like a lot of that stuff comes in and, and really makes it just a just a sonic feast. Say that this that's a tricky song. It's, it's very tricky. Like it sounds, it is very. There's a lot going on. It is musically, as as Rob was saying, it is kind of a feast of a lot happening. But it also sounds more complicated than it is. 
Like when you really break it down, like I, I spent a lot of time tapping out the signatures for getting better. And for a lot of the songs on this, on this record, frankly, but getting better stays very steady. Like there's a real Ringo backbeat that's just like, he's just keeping it. He's just keeping it steady. And we're just, we're going. And it's like, it sounds more complicated than it is, which is in and of itself. Like that's a masterpiece to be able to pull that off. For, mm-hmm. for me, I think what the, what the sort of special sauce that actually makes that song probably sound more complex than it is, is that clanging guitar in the background. That... I just, I love that. Yeah. It, 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 it just, it just it's, a, it's a song that makes me want to just get up and, and do something because of it. It's one of those things that just genuinely makes me happy. Rob, what's your Desert mm-hmm. Island song? Uh, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Ah, there you go. Uh, oh yeah. I, I, uh, I, I love that song. What we're talking about, you know, songs that kind of were a bit creepy when I was a kid. That was certainly one of them. Cause I, I always thought of, you know, something wicked this way comes kind of circus. You know, sort of Bradbury-esque, kind of uh, a little bit frightening type type of a feel to it. Basically, it was, and and the story goes that you know John had this poster, this sort of Victorian era poster, and he basically transcribed the words and made it into a that was on the poster, made it into into the song. Again, it's it's a feast. It's just a feast of for the ears. You know, all the all the sampled material that they used, all the calliope music that they cut up and they put it in the background. And then they had George Martin on one organ and they had John Lennon on another organ playing the melody. And it's this swirling kind of, you know, uh, roiling kind of, kind of experience that you're having when you're listening to the song. That, it's just one of the richest tunes on the on the record, so that's my that's my vote. Fair enough. Yeah, I won't argue with you there. One of the things that they sort of took with them on future albums was the idea that each song has its own individual palette of sounds, that each sound each song is its own universe, and and you can you build it up, and it's and it's and it's something bigger than just being you know three minutes and 15 seconds of, of She Loves You, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a world of its own. And I think they really take that to town pretty much throughout the albums. You can tell, and looping it back to the beginning of the conversation, I think that it feel, the record feels optimistic in a way because it's Paul's. Like, this mm-hmm. is a Paul, this, it has Paul's soul in it, yes, I think. that is true. And, I like, there, there's input, and, you know, I absolutely hear... George feeling like, what the hell am I supposed to do in this? And John to some extent, too. I mean, he, John Lennon's writing could sometimes be improved by constraints. So I think that, like, it worked out just fine for him. Um, And some of his tracks on this are, are, as we've been talking about, they're revolutionary. But you, it's a, the soul of this album is Paul's. And you really feel, I really feel that. From yeah. the beginning to the end. And that I might be why, that. like, emotionally, I didn't really plug into it as much as I thought I was going to. Like, I was expecting to have a much more emotional reaction to this album than I did all month. I mean, I'm going to gently push back on that. Because I, for, for me, I think, yeah, you're probably right. The Paul probably had more more creative direction on this. Than, I, I feel that we're going to have later albums down the road, you know, not naming names, Abbey Road. But I, I think, you know, where <laughs> it, it, it's quite clearly 
everyone's just doing it because Paul's doing it and it's just easier not to argue with Paul. But but this one, I genuinely feel, I think John signed on. John has signed on to it. He's actually going with the concept. He's actually saying, you know what? I can do some interesting things. And you know, and I think you get songs like Mr. Kite and and, and Lucy in the Sky with the Diamonds because, because he's actually engaged with the idea behind it. Absolutely. And I, I think that, the cons- that Paul's constraints on this album improved John's writing and let gave him an outlet for that, but I don't think you can ignore the fact that it was still Paul's soul. So next year we're going to get inundated with it, it was 50 years ago today think pieces in magazines and websites and all sorts of stuff about how Sgt. Yeah. Pepper changed music. So I thought it was time that we got in front of it and maybe address the question of how did Sgt. Pepper's change music? And I will even volunteer to go first on this one. Okay. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going to demonstrate a little bit. So let me de- first of all demonstrate by playing the last song on side A of Help. You said that living with me was bringing her down, yeah. She would never be free when I was around. She's got a ticket to ride. She's got a ticket to ride. She's got a ticket to ride. But she don't care. And that's Ticket to Ride, which is a really stunning pop song. And now, here's what ends side A of Sgt. Pepper. The band begins at 10 to 6 when Mr. K performs his tricks without a sound. And Mr. H will demonstrate 10 somersets he'll undertake on solid ground. Bing, bing, some days in preparation, a splendid time is guaranteed for all. And tonight, Mr. Kite is topping the bill. I sort of do this not necessarily to compare and contrast because I think they're both superior John Lennon songs. What I argue with, though, is that what Sgt. Pepper's did was it changed the idiom of music. It, it meant that pop music no longer had to be bound by the conventions that lyrics had to fill in the gaps of teen hormones that they could be a mini movie um as it were and i think the music suddenly changed from being something that was done as a strict band lineup to something that was much more expansive and mm. and basically provide the soundtrack for that mini movie mm-hmm. I, I think I, I so I, that's where i think uh the sort of central kind of cha- sea change happened with sergeant peppers is that it changed what a song could be and, and to a certain extent that change was already and was well in motion by the time sergeant pepper came around i just think it sort of solidified it for, and, and sort of made marked it for marked it marked it for good mm-hmm. i think too that uh, an important and i think we've mentioned this before when we talked about uh, when we discussed revolver and that is that they were no longer constrained by a stage setup you know so and one thing that I really noticed on this album, and I guess I'd always, always sort of had it in mind, is that the guitar isn't the central sort of focus on this album. There's lots of keyboards, you know, uh, lots of, uh, you know, different types of instruments, uh, samples, you know, that the benefit of Mr. Kite stuff is, you know, there's a bit of samples on there with the Calliope music and things like that. Um, so they weren't, this, in, in many ways, you know, Sgt. Pepper is like their kid A, you know what I mean? Like they, they kind of... Yeah. Kind of, you know, if Revolver was you know, OK Computer, this was Kid A, right? Yeah. And they, they, they no longer had to 
to play guitars if they didn't want to. If the song didn't call for it, they, they didn't have to have that being central. And there's great some great guitar pieces on Sgt. Pepper. But the thing that I notice is it's more of a it plays more of a supporting role. It's not quite as you know, it's not quite as as uh, as guitar centric. Um, and I think this this speaks to a greater sort of truth, uh, and that is that you know whatever the song needed, um, the song would get. You know whether it could be reproduced on stage or not. Uh, and I think this really really opened opened things up. You know to to a lot of different bands. Uh, even starting this in, in the year that this was recorded. You know like the Small Faces, Odd Gun Nut Gun Flake, and um, and uh, the Zombies, Odyssey, and Oracle. Like th- these albums that were that they were created. Uh, using different types of instruments, uh, lots of um, uh, you know, kind of kind of electronic instruments and things like that, and that's what the song needed. So that's what the song would get. So um, to me, that's that's what Sgt. Pepper helped to usher in. I think. I mean, what both of you have said is completely spot on. For me, it feels like the everything before this in terms of the Beatles catalog has, you've been seeing pieces of the evolution. You've been seeing pieces of them each really branching out and being adventurous and relying less on a, a, a kind of classic pop band structure and starting to kind of get a little bit meta and pull some things apart and see if you really need to have the structure that, that they've had now for however many years and it feels like everything is building to Sgt. Pepper. And I think that, as you were saying, Graham, earlier in the conversation, that, you know, people will hold this up as the epitome of, you know, Summer of Love, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that Sgt. Pepper really is like a plateau. And there's what came before it, and then there's what comes after it. And that it's a crux in musical history. And you, you just can't deny that. Well, I think those are all pretty good answers. And I, I think that's a good place to close our conversation on Sgt. Pepper. So if you have anything you'd like to say, you can send us an email at beatles at gemgeekerrarebug.com or visit our website at a yearwiththebeatles.podbean.com. And now, as we do every episode, we're going to have what we call extra credit homework, where we listen or watch some Beatles material that complements the album we're listening to. And this month, we've been watching this. From these streets, very close to the cavern Rutland, came the fabulous Rutland sound, created by the prefab four, Dirk, Nasty, Stig, and Barry, who created a musical legend that will last a lunchtime. They were discovered by their manager, Leggy Mountbatten, in a lunchtime disco very close to these streets. Their first album was made in 20 minutes. The second took even longer. Tonight, we examine the legend of the Ruttles. We look at their lives, their loves, their music. We examine some of the problems that made them what they are today. And we shall also be asking some of the people who worked with them whether they were really the sort of lovable people they were made out to be. We should be asking many people who knew them what they were really like. That's a clip from the 1978 mockumentary The Ruddles, All You Need Is Cash, which was written by and starred Eric Idle with music by Neil Innes and was directed by Eric Idle and Gary Weiss. And it's out on DVD and Blu-ray, but it's also out in DVD and Blu-ray in the worst special edition format since George Lucas had Greedo shoot first. <laughs> Sometimes the truth hurts. Now, Rob, I yeah. know you and I were huge fans of the Ruddles when we were teenagers. Yes. And in some ways, they were a form of Monty Python methadone for us while we were waiting to get a fix of Flying Circus. Sure. But how does the Ruddles hold up for you now? I love it just as much now as I did then, and that's a fact. It's just, it's so wonderful. It's just a wonderful, 
uh, piece of uh, of affectionate piss taking is what it is. You know, it's mm. just it's got it's got you know earlier on in, in our podcast we talked about the Beatles myth. You know, I think we talked about it when we talked about the movies. Um, yeah. This the Ruddles has that. Um, it has that that sense of myth, and it acknowledges that that the myth, and that's what makes it funny because it's so aware uh, of of that sort of arc, and it just some of the lines in there are, happen so fast, you know, that uh, it, it, it's a it's a movie that keeps on giving. I love it just as much now as I did then, Graham. It really is a joy. I mean, I I didn't I haven't didn't have as long a history with it as you gentlemen did. Um, and I didn't watch it. That's your polite way of saying that we're old. <laughs> no, 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 that's my polite way of saying this is the one I didn't watch every Saturday morning. Like I don't, oh, yeah. it's not in yeah, my, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not in my DNA. I love it. I do love it. I loved it when I first saw it and it is, it is still as hilarious and wonderful as it ever was. But yeah, I, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a joy. It's a delight. I still think it's, uh, I know this is going to be a somewhat shocking opinion. I think it's a better mockumentary about music than Spinal Tap. I, oh. I, 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 wow. I, I, I'm one of those people who just have never, ever gotten this a Spinal Tap, and I might as well just admit it on a podcast so people can hate me. But but for me, I just, I just think I just is think this that is such true, a... true, Graham? <laughs> yes, it is. I don't hate you. You're... All right, all right. We'll let it pass. That's, we'll let it... That's decent. But for me, I, I, I just think it is it's such a well-made mockumentary and it, it's such a, a I think what I love about it most it's such a an observant parody of the Beatles I, mm. I was amazed to realize years later that this actually predates the complete Beatles by about five years yeah <laughs> I yeah. always used to think oh they just they just watch the complete Beatles and just and just followed it no 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 they they the they knew their Beatles history down so well they were able to just parody it's just so faithfully right down to the you know the the right down to the women stumbling try, trying to get on the train when they go to visit the Maharushi figure it, it's just so so observed I, I'm, I'm stunned by that yeah I, and again that's what makes it funny it, yeah. it, it wouldn't be as funny if they just you know made shit up you know yeah. what I mean? And it, it wouldn't be what, as funny if it wasn't yeah. as kind like it really when you what you were saying at the beginning of Rob about it being loving like it wouldn't yeah have been it as is. funny if it was more biting it really wouldn't have been mm-hmm. or if oh. the songs weren't as, as well observed as well which oh, is a whole other so layer right i mean that that's the that's, songs that's, are so good yeah yeah and and they're really and and the great thing about the songs too it, not only neil innes's uh writing of them but the playing on it uh are just razor sharp you know and they had some really good musicians playing playing those songs as well like Ricky Fatar, who plays the, the Stig character, the sort of George Harrison character, he, he's an actu- he's actually a musician, and he played on the sessions. And uh, guitarist uh, Ollie Halsall, uh, who is a, a vastly underrated uh, guitar player, he played with uh, Kevin Ayers for a lo- long time, and he was part of the Canterbury, you know, uh, progressive scene. And I guess Neil Innes would have met him when when he was in the Doodah uh, band, right? Yeah. And uh, and. The, the, the the playing on on the on the on the songs themselves are just razor sharp and just really it, it, affection. That's what it is. It's yeah, it, is, it is affection and and and. And but it's even the songs. It's just so observant on on how what kind of flourishes would Lennon and McCartney have done to this song had they had they some of them you could actually just slip them onto slip them onto a Beatles album and you would never yeah. blink. 
uh, which is which is the one thing I, I, I love I love about it because they don't. Uh, there are a few that are just that are just very obviously parodies, but yes. but there's others on it that you just um, let's be natural. That that could, that could be a later Beatles song. Time goes by as we all know naturally. People come and people go naturally. Let's be natural. It really feels that way. Yeah. Uh, so this sort of anticipated my next question, which was, what songs in particular grabbed you? And like, why don't we start with you, Shannon? I have "Get Up and Go" stuck in my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> That is the logical consequence of act listening to anything off of that. You end up with get up in your go in your head. You absolutely do. And I had in my notes, you know, I need to pick a favorite Ruddle song, and I didn't want to pick get up and go because it felt too obvious. But it is. I can't deny it. It's so good and catchy and delightful, and I I love it. I I, I get up and go all the way. <laughs> Rob, uh, I I always liked uh, cheese and onion. Uh, and double back alley. I, 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 it's hard to choose between those two, um, just just because again, it's just so packed with affection and and just uh, they're just well made songs in in and of themselves, right? That's the thing. But I, I also love I also love double back alley. I, I, um, Ouch is a great song. <laughs> Ouch too. is a great song. Explain the way I feel for you. My feet don't touch the ground. The one the other song I really love is uh, is uh, "Am I in Love?" Yeah, I must be in love because it is such. That feels like a Beatles song. Yeah. That feels like a circa nineteen sixty four Beatles song. Yeah, but, uh, you, and hold my hand. Yeah, yeah. 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 Hold my hand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I love Perfect. that they that they that they do the callback to it when they do the when they do their version of All You Need Is Love, yeah. just like just like <laughs> just like they do, you know, yeah. She Loves You in 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 uh, in All You Need Is yeah. Love. I, it's uh, really hard to choose it, just one song. Uh, like they're they're really, all really good. And Neil Neil Innes, like I said, he was in the Bonzo Doodah band, right? And he he was a yeah. he was a solidly established songwriter anyway. Um, but but he, I think that's like some of his best work, you know. So what would you say are some of the more well-spotted observations on the Beatles that you that you found in this? Well, there's two kind of character moments that I that really just kind of 
blew my mind with appreciation. One, I mean, it's a little bit more biting, but Eric's Eric Idle's face as his like his Paul face is just just vapid enough, and like the it, the eyes true. are like not quite in focus. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And it's like that is amazing. Similarly. Yeah. Um, the gentleman who plays Nasty when they have like the the rooftop sequence is chewing gum. It's yeah. so perfect. Yeah, Neil Innes totally captures all of John Lennon's manners. All of the and just... Yeah, and the and great to thing is, chew gum was just spectacular. The great thing is, Lennon loved it. He was yeah. sent a copy to, for approval, and he kept it. He said, "I'm not giving it back." You know, so he was totally on board with it. Well, because it's I good, and like you yeah. can't. He, there was no way that John Lennon wouldn't love it. Of course, he would yeah. love it. Yeah. Well, apparently, Paul McCartney was a little frosty with uh, with Eric Idle uh, well, around that time. Um, you know, but then uh, you know Linda saw it and loved it and sort of talked Paul out of it. So that's that sounds. A, that all sounds yeah. very correct to me. I, I adore the little touches they do in things like parody the uh, taping of uh, of of all you need is love. They're they're they're, par- they, they're like they've got the they've got the the studio environment perfect. They have the song is just dead on. It 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 really grabs everything and they and they and they're so observant on you know at what period they did they start getting sideburns at what point did they start doing mustaches when are they into full beards it just it just it just has that kind of. And can we talk about how deadpan Mick Jagger is? Oh my about God! The, yes. About the we rattle? have to talk about Mick Jagger. We have to talk about. Mick Jagger. I think one, I think one of my favorite things in that thing is when he's talking about Dirk McQuilly offer, uh, offering him some songs. That was a song. Yeah, he wrote it in fifteen minutes, and uh, it was horrible. We didn't record it. Okay, they came down. They came down, and we were trying to rehearse, and they said, "Do you want a song?" We said, "Yeah, we're always really open for songs." because we didn't write our own. And of course the Rattlers were always well known for their hit-making potential ability. Right. And so they ran around the corner to the pub to write this song and came back with it and played it to us. And um, it was horrible. And so we never bothered to record it. And like, there's a moment in the first, the first time that Mick Jagger shows up where he almost cracks. Like, there's a couple of moments where he's just like, "Oh to God, yeah, I don't yeah, know." He's holding it together, yeah. But he, generally speaking, he's just he's just so on the money in terms of his timing and and whatnot. <sighs> I think in terms of the sort of guest musicians on there, uh, I think I think Jagger's appearance is is my oh, favorite. Jagger, it's my it's mine too. Yeah. Paul Simon knocks it out of the park too. Paul Simon is just like this is a documentary about people that I respect. Like he is just Paul yeah. Simon just keeps on answering questions about the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. he still does doing it right. Yeah. And of course, we can't talk about uh, that this area of, of 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 the film and not talk about uh, George Harrison. Oh yes, uh, Amia. Yes. I you didn't know? want to bring it up. It felt like it would be too in character. AKA, but, um, AKA Shannon's favorite part. Um, my yeah. favorite. He looks yeah. so dapper. <laughs> For me, what I love about that scene is actually uh, Michael Palin playing. playing yeah. <laughs> playing the, was it, is it the Neil Aspinall analog? I can't remember who he's analoging about yeah. that. But yeah. Things have gone. I won't deny it. Television sets. The odd car belonging to the company has... Uh, has disappeared, but uh, it's not extreme, you know. Although, I did come in once. I found that my office had been nicked. 
mm. but it had been nicked by uh, by Ron Klein, who we called in to stop this sort of uh, flow of goods from the building, so that was all right. Mm. So once you see this stuff, do you feel that Ruddle Coal will continue into the future? Absolutely. I feel that once we've put a stop to this sort of bit of petty pilfering, Ruddle Coal will last for a very, very, very... And, and, and I'm just thinking, wow, he's doing this in front of George Harrison, which is even funnier yeah. because he was there. And George Harrison couldn't love it more. Like, he's just having so much fun. <laughs> yeah. The, the, yeah, the fact that he's even there, just a huge sort of um, bolt of energy for the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, we've already identified that scene, but what would be some of your other favorite scenes, Shannon? I mean, for kind of the wrong reasons, but that, that Ed Sullivan voiceover is a little... Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. It's it. a little brutal. Um, but I think in terms of, like, favorite other moments, the rampage about the reasons that Stig is clearly dead. <laughs> <laughs> if you sing the title of Sergeant Rutter's only darts club band backwards, it's supposed to sound very like Stig has been dead for ages, honestly. In fact, it sounds uncannily like Danab, Bulk, Ilno, Stretta, Tenegris. Palpable nonsense. I, it's amazing. I yeah. am. In, uh, we read it. We read it in the in the bumper at the top of the show. But and 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 Rob had to stifle himself from laughing. But I have to say, I still love. I'm standing by the banks of the Mississippi. I'm standing by the banks of the Mississippi. The first. Na the first national. <laughs> <laughs> you can't even do it. He just stops, and he just gives a look like... Yes, it's so... And the funny thing is, is that I am not a big Eric Idle fan. I really... He, I just find his style of comedy kind of turns me off a lot, and I'm just not a... I'm just not a, I'm just not a huge fan. But I adore him in this. First, first Spinal Tap, and now this, Graham. My goodness, I, know, I thought I knew I, I know. I'm a, Mike, I'm, a, I'm a Michael Palin, John Cleese guy. I'm sorry. But, 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 I, but, I, but yeah, I, I, but he is so spot on in this. And I just love I'm Standing by the Banks. Uh, and, and, oh, yes, uh, he, Brian, Brian, Blind Lemon Peel. The, uh, yes, the, that's right. Blind Lemon Peel. <laughs> which is, which is so great because. And it took everything I ever written. Those four guys from Liverpool came here. He's lying. I ain't lying. He's Always I lying. I lie. Every time there's a documentary on white music around here, he claims he started I all did, that. I did, I did, I did. Last week, he claimed he started the Everly Brothers, Frank Sinatra, and Lawrence Welch. I did. He's always lying. Practically every major documentary about music did involve going to going to the Mississippi Delta and interviewing some old black guy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, my, in terms of Eric Idle's uh, performance in this, you know, he plays a number of characters. My favorite character is the uh, the uh, the professor of applied narcotics. <laughs> yes, and do as you who, please. Uh, yeah, the yes. the, uh, the the guy he just you know proceeds to just rhyme off a bunch of yeah. quasi intellectual you know <laughs> about you know what you know what the, what the music means and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's hilarious. Just oh, and the know. Dan Aykroyd cameo. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah, that's right. How does it feel to be the world's biggest asshole? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we should actually give some mention to all the all the original era SNL people who show up. I mean, I love Bill Murray the K. You know? Yes, that's right. 
Yeah, and, and Gilda Radner. Yeah. And Gilda Radner at the end is, is, is so great. Yeah. It's one of those things that is just utterly packed full. Even tracing our discussions about the film, like we're all over the shop talking about all of our different favorite stuff. It's like this, this big smorgasbord of comedy, you know, that, that, uh, that it represents. And every time you watch it, a, a, a new part kind of leaps out at you. That's what I found. I was, I was once again reminded of how incredible their recreations were of, of Magical Mystery Tour and, and, and especially Yellow Submarine. Like, mm. to, to find the money to get someone to go parody as a sequence from, you know, a, a, an animated film like Yellow Submarine and to do it in that style and do it so brilliantly. And then they even did the, like, the actual kind of... Um, the actual the actual bit of dialogue where none of the characters sound like sound sound like the actual people just yeah. like in Yellow Submarine. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, it was so awesome. Speaking of which, I have an over intellectual question, uh, which you've yeah. already partially answered. But very uh, good. In, in, All right. But uh, it, it's my final question, which is, uh, what is it about the Beatles that you think makes them so inimical to parody? Uh, again, uh, at the risk of repeating myself, uh, and uh, everyone should listen to our uh, our discussions about Beatle movies. Um, but I think it's that myth part, that, that myth aspect of, of the Beatles arc. I think that's, that opens itself up to, to being made fun of, you know, just because it's so resonant, you know, and that's the thing. And it, it's a resonant thing, uh, and it's easy to, to do without being mean about it. Uh, and and that, that's certainly what we see uh, in the Ruddles. And, you know, it's just, it's hilarious. And it takes, you know, it... it uh, it makes fun of its subjects, but at the same time, that affection never, never goes. They never veer from that affectionate type of, uh, of, of feeling to it, uh, and I, I think that's what, um, and and it it sort of connects into something else I said earlier about about the Beatles' music being life affirming, and 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 what you said, Graham, about it being optimistic. Um, those things are attractive qualities, but you know those types of things that sort of resonate with a lot of people is going to be open to, to, to parody. I think that the transformative history of the Beatles really lends itself to, to parody. There's so much there. Mm. There's so many different eras. There's so much that you can pull, pull references from and, and fold into. There's so, so many rooms for in joke. They, there's just so much to work with. It's a much, it's a much less deep, uh, re- fonts than Rob's, but I just think there's so much, and there's so much variety of material that it's really, Mm -hmm. it's rife. Well, that's all the time we have. We'll be back in a little while for a discussion of the Beatles' ninth album from later in 1967, Magical Mystery Tour. That's next time on A Year with the Beatles. In the meantime, thank you Rob Jones and Shannon Dohar. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. I'm Graham Burke. We'll see you next time. Plus, we're standing by the ban- ah. Plus, we're standing by the banks of the Mississippi to talk about the greatest Beatles parody ever made. So stick around. I'm going to do that just one more time because I. <laughs> Sorry, I was just oh, I was just remembering the banks of the Mississippi. One of my favorite lines. Night.
<laughs> okay. All right. We'll we'll save that for later. We'll save it. For I know. Later. I know. Here we go. We're gonna do that one more time. Okay. <laughs> because I because I think I I almost giggled when I did it too. Okay. <laughs> the oh, first yeah. national. No. 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 <laughs> Never not funny. Oh God. Here we go. Okay. <clears throat> Is it where when Shannon grabbed me by the throat and like jostled my head around? Was it was it? Am <laughs> I'm recording now? We're gonna we're going back to this. Okay, here we go. So um so um I I guess my so that was so that was change and my word was optimism and uh damn it I've lost my place in my notes um so anyways uh my word was optimism um and for me it's not just it's for one thing it's that the album made me so damn happy growing up when I was listening to it uh but also and oh f me I it stopped record stop recording you guys okay that's fine it's now recording you guys so it's all good so it's all good all right um, bastard <laughs> Well, I just only, I, it's a good thing that we, I, I just started it because that would have been really problematic. Okay, hang on a sec. Right. Hang on a Very sec. Good. We're, we're just going to go uh, give us. Oh, this is not helping us be punchy. We're so punchy. Oh, I, I know, totally. I know. All right. <clears throat> and this is uh, this is going to wear away your optimism, which is ironic. Ironic, I know. Okay, here we go. Okay, I'm recording, right. you're recording. Hey, I am a pepper, okay. a pepper. We are professionals. Wouldn't you like to be recording yes. too? <laughs> Exactement. So, uh, so that was, uh, right. so that was, um, so that was change. My word was optimism. And oh, for f sakes, come on! <laughs> no, it wasn't the dog. It was my. <laughs> I am dying. I know. Dying. Oh, I know. The timer that I had to go, I, that I had to go, suddenly decided to go off. I'm like, shut up! It's been 23 minutes, Graham. It's very important. Okay, here we go. We're doing this again. Okay. <laughs> I've just decided that we're done. I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to go straight into talking about optimism. F*** it, optimism. Optimism. That's what I have to say. All right. So, so um, yes. for me, for me, the album is, uh, for me, a fundamentally optimistic thing. Uh, <laughs> 